Welcome to the Grace Baptist Sermon Podcast. Pastor Andy Oliver is our Bible teacher and expositor. Today's message is from Nehemiah chapter 2, The Ridicule of the Righteous. One of the things that uh, is sometimes a surprise for a new believer is that uh, serving the Lord is not necessarily easy. Some folks think, well, if I get saved, then all my problems go away. And uh, that is not... Uh, that is not usually the case. Now granted, as far as eternity is concerned, all of our, our problems go away. But as far as the here and now is concerned, we receive grace to endure. We have a God who sustains us. We have one who will give us our daily bread and so forth. But we will very often run into new trials, new difficulties that we did not experience before. Our salvation is not dependent upon it, but holy living is expected of God's children. And that being the case, the world is rebuked by holy living and endeavors to undermine it. This is the reason why in false religion, uh, man creates gods in his own image instead of the other way around. Gods with the same or usually lower standards than himself. This lowers the bar on morality, and as we've seen so much in the last uh, last generation or so, making good evil and evil good, turning morality upside down. This allows mankind to live as he pleases, and convincing himself as well as others that all is well. And there's a, a huge effort in our own time, our own culture, to, to do this very thing, to normalize depravity, to make immorality, moral, and those who complain about it, those who would point out the error of their ways, well, then we're the ones that are immoral. We're the ones that are out of line. Now, the difficulty with this whole system of calling good evil and evil good is that there is still a holy God in heaven. And man still falls short of the standard that God has created. And frankly, that's what really counts. That's really the only thing that ultimately counts. Now, this means that in the here and now, there are basically two groups of people. Those who recognize and revere God. Those whose eyes God has opened to see their failure, to live up to his standard. And those who refuse. I don't want to have anything to do with that. I don't think that's right, and I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to make up my own rules. And those who take that attitude in their belligerence and hostility to a holy God often attack those who are God's children. Now, in our text, we're going to be looking at only three verses today. We're going to be filling in a couple of gaps, and we'll come back to the same theme here in a couple of weeks. Nehemiah is among those who have found the mercy of God. He has a reverence for God. He is he is uh, not resting in his own righteousness, but in the righteousness of God. And Israel has been given the holy decrees of God. They have the scripture at this particular point in time. Nehemiah is probably the last of the Old Testament books to be composed. Uh, was probably finished after Malachi. He knows right and wrong based on what God has said. And uh, there are folks in our text that have recognized the mercy and grace of God, and there are those who have not. Nehemiah, as we have seen in the last couple of weeks, has, after long prayerful months, arrived on the scene, arrived there in Jerusalem. He has done his information gathering. 
has the people of God, and with the authorization of the king of Persia, he is ready to build the walls of Jerusalem, to remove reproach, to gain protection for the inhabitants and the worshipers. And among the hurdles that remain, and there's always hurdles anytime any project is undertaken, for good especially, the greatest will be the opposition of those who hate the people of God. You arrive at the scene, you see this gigantic hill, the stone hill of Jerusalem. On the top of that hill is a small temple that had been rebuilt two generations before. And there are a few small cottages surrounding it, but there's nothing else there other than piles of rock and little bits of debris and things that you can probably discern. Well, this used to be a wall, and because you can see some cut stone here, that this used to be part of some building. But that's all that's there. And you would think that the the biggest problem would be be clearing away all the rubble, cutting new stone, and uh, shaping the rock that's there, and hauling in in timber from some distance away, and actually doing the construction. That is not going to be the biggest problem. That is not the biggest challenge. The challenge is the opposition. Now, we skipped a verse in our our reading last time, in our our study last time. Look at verse 10 of chapter 2. It says, when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. Now, who in the world are these guys? Who is Sanballat? Uh, He is the governor of Samaria. Now, a little background. By the way, he has a pagan name. He doesn't have a name derived from uh, from the uh, from the scripture, as we see with so many of the Old Testament names. By the way, uh, almost all of your Old Testament names mean something, and they are compound words in Hebrew. And uh, this particular name means that the uh, the moon god gives life. That's what Sanballat means. He is probably a Samaritan. Now. In New Testament, we're familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan. As you read the Gospels, you can't help but understand that there was a great deal of hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans during the, the New Testament time, during the time of the Gospels. When Jesus had his earthly ministry, there was this, this hostility between these two groups. Why was that? Where did, where did the Samaritans come from? Had they always been there? And the answer is no, they had not always been there. Listen carefully. I know sometimes when I'm, when I'm dealing with the history, the eyes glaze over. And you're thinking of all the other things you have to do today. All right, I want you to focus, because otherwise we're going to come back to the Samaritans and say, now, who are those folks again? All right, now listen carefully. Following the death of Solomon, going back a long time, going back 500 years before all this, Solomon's ne'er-do-well son, a guy named Rehoboam, was not half as bright as his father and alienated a bunch of people and ended up splitting the kingdom between the north and the south. So you ended up having one country divided into two, north and south. In the south, the heirs of David, Rehoboam and his descendants, continued to rule from Jerusalem. In the north, they moved the capital around several different places, but the primary capital was a city called Samaria. And it was a great location, very easily defended and so on. In the north... When you read the books of First and Second Kings, and it talks about Israel and it talks about Judah, those are the two, what the two nations became. The northern one is Israel; the southern one is Judah. In in the uh, in the eighth century BC, the Assyrians, 
The Assyrians, this is the same people that Jonah went and preached to. The Assyrians came and they captured the city of Samaria and carried the Israelites off captive and scattered them all throughout their empire, which would include what eventually became the Babylonian Empire and then some. They also imported a bunch of people from other parts of their empire, and the Jews that were left behind mingled with the people that were there and created a new people called Samaritans. The problem with all this is not necessarily the biological mixing. Big deal. Who cares? The issue was worship. Because all the people that they imported into Israel were pagans, and they worshiped their gods. The Jews that were left behind were not particularly faithful to the Lord, which is why they got carried away captive in the first place. And uh, there were some problems following this uh, initial inter- intermixing, and so the king of Assyria sent a priest to teach the people how to serve the Lord. Now, he didn't do a particularly good job because the people served the Lord, and they served their pagan gods. They did both. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make any, any graven image. They, they totally set those ideas aside. We're going we're gonna to pay lip service to the creator God. We're going to pay lip service to the God of Israel, but, you know, all those gods that we worship before and that our, our ancestors worship, we're going to worship those too. And so the Samaritans became, created their own religion of mixing these two. And it says in 2 Kings chapter 17, starting in verse 33, referring to the Samaritans, they feared the Lord and served their own gods after the manner of the nations whom they carried away from thence. Unto this day do they after the, the former manners. They fear not the Lord. Not in reality. They fear not the Lord. Neither do they after their statutes but after or after their ordinances or after the law or the commandments of the Lord, commanding the children which the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. They are not really serving the Lord. It's lip service. It's uh, lost people going to church on Easter. All right, we're gonna we're gonna make ourselves feel good. We're gonna pat ourselves on the back. Hey, I'm a church going. I'm a Christian, but not in reality. They're busy worshiping their false gods. Now, by the time we get to the New Testament era, they had refined things a little bit, and what they had done is they had become more and more Jewish, but had created some of their own things that they wouldn't budge on. There are still Samaritans today. They still have their own religion. They still have their own worship. There are about a thousand of them left, but they are still there today. There was a great deal of hostility between the Samaritans and the Jews, even at this point. And it would continue throughout their history. Sanballat is the governor of Assyria, or of, of, of Samaria. He is a Persian appointee. He has been there for some time. He is a powerful and influential man. West of the Euphrates River, in the whole area that is parts of Syria and Jordan and Lebanon and Israel today, he was probably the head honcho. He was probably the most powerful governor. He wielded a huge amount of influence and, of course, made a lot of money. Somebody else comes in, Nehemiah, an appointee of the Persian king, and Sanballat is fit to be tied. I'm the guy who's in charge around here. I'm the one who calls the shots. I'm the one who fills my own coffers, making sure the king gets his cut. I'm the one who wields influence. Anybody who wants to do anything around here has to come and see me first. Who is this upstart? He's going to be causing me trouble. And that's Sanballat's attitude. 
The governorships under the Persians were very often hereditary. It's almost like a, a sub-king. And so the records indicate that there were several uh, different people of this name and succeeding there in, in, uh, in Samaria. It was to his benefit that Judea, that, uh, Judea uh, remained poor. It was to his benefit that Judea remained weak. And it was to his benefit that Jerusalem not have walls. Because that way he can put pressure on them and they can't do anything about it because they don't have any defenses. Okay, that's Sanballat. We'll come back to him because he's going to cause all kinds of problems. Then we have Tobiah. He is a, it says the servant. Uh, we sometimes talk about somebody who is a civil servant. He is a, a government official. By the way, the same, same term is uh, is used for Nehemiah on at least one or two occasions. So the idea of a civil servant could be somebody who's in very high position. He is probably, probably the, the governor of Ammon. The Ammonites were historically long-term adversaries to Israel. They are the descendants of Lot, Abraham's nephew. They, uh, their capital city was Rabbah, which today is Ammon, Jordan. Why is it called Ammon? The Ammonites, folks, all right? It's the same, same piece of real estate. The same water, the same fountains that, that uh, took care of ancient Rabbah are the same fountains, the same springs and so on that take care of modern Amman, Jordan. And uh, again, long-term hostility toward Israel, and yet he is an ally of Sanballat. All right, so they're neighbors, east and west of each other on either side of the Jordan. I want you to turn to, to verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant... The Ammonite and Geshem the Arabian. Okay, so we're now we're going to go south and east and mostly south. He is uh, the king probably of a place called Kedar. And uh, Kedar, you ever, when, when you uh, when you start reading all those genealogies, and I know that when you look at your Bible reading programs and you get to those, you just lick your chops. You're hard, you can just hardly wait to get into that. They are important because you get to find out who's who. And as you become more and more familiar with your Bible, you will, as you're reading through these long lists of names, certain names will jump out at you. Oh, that's so-and-so from such and such. Oh, that's the guy that did this. All right? Kedar. Who in the world is Kedar? Kedar was the second son of Ishmael. Ishmael settled in what is the, the northwestern part of Saudi Arabia. And uh, the true Arabs, not everybody from, uh, uh, from Iraq to Morocco are Arabs. They speak Arabic because of the Quran. Ethnically, the Arab, the true Arabs are a much smaller ethnic group in the northern part of Saudi Arabia. And that's what this man was. He is king of Kedar. He's a descendant of Ishmael. And he ruled over a very large but mostly desolate area to the west, south, and southeast of the Dead Sea, the former Arab territories that made up Moab and Edom and beyond. And uh, we know from archaeology that these folks were very much at the time idolaters. So Jerusalem... On the north, on the east, and on the south is surrounded by hostile enemies. If you go to the west, you run into, it gets wet. Okay, that's where the Mediterranean is. So on three sides, they've got enemies, and on the west, they've got water. They are surrounded by enemies. The capital city there in Jerusalem has no walls. Nehemiah shows up, hopefully to remedy the situation. That's the plan. But we have some very hostile, hostile, uh, governors and so on surrounding these. Now the amazing thing, 
is that all of these governors are supposedly subject to the king of Persia. This is the same guy who has given Nehemiah his credentials. One would expect them to be, see, oh, oh, the king has commanded you to do this. Oh, you have paperwork authorizing you to do this. Well, since the king is our king too, we'll have to help. No, it isn't going to work out that way. There's a huge amount of hostility here. They don't want it to happen. Israel is surrounded by very hostile enemies. They are hostile to a strong Judah. They are also hostile to the true worship of God. The Bible is our sole rule of faith and practice. I want you to keep your finger here in Nehemiah, and I want you to go to 2 Timothy in your New Testament. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And by the way, these are very important verses in your Bible because they deal with the idea of inspiration as well. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That word inspiration is a compound Greek word that means God breathed. All scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine. That's what we believe. For reproof, pointing out our errors, for correction, fixing the problems, and for instruction and in righteousness, how we are to behave, how we are to live, how we are, frankly, to worship. The Bible tells us what we are to believe. The Bible tells us what we are to do. There is no room for innovative worship. Let me say that again. There is no room for innovative worship. If you had a dad that that uh, you were working on some project, could be a home improvement project, maybe you're under the hood of a car, you're working with dad. If your dad was anything like my dad, he said, I want it done this way, and it needs to be done in this order, and use this tool to do it. And if I deviated from that, guarantee I was going to mess it up, and the reason it was messed up is because you didn't follow instructions. If I want to please God, I need to follow God's instructions. I don't please God by telling God, I'll tell you what, I appreciate what you've said, but I've got a much better idea, and I'm going to do it my way. You don't please God doing it that way. You don't please God by worshiping Him in a way that He has not prescribed. There is no room for innovative worship. We go to the Scripture to find out how we are to worship. This is one of the reasons why we read Scripture, we have public reading of Scripture as part of our morning service, because that's what we're supposed to do. We sing, we preach, we instruct in the Word of God, we pray, we have the public reading of Scripture. All those are components of things that were part of public worship in the New Testament. The Samaritans, wanting to pay lip service to the things of God, wanting to pay lip service and honor the, the God of Israel, go through the motions of worship. But they corrupted what the Scripture had to say. They're adding their own ideas imported from the pagan ideas that came with them from their ancestors. And so Israel is excluding the Samaritans from participating in the worship there. So, well, that wasn't very polite. It has nothing to do with polite. It has to do with right and wrong. I can't change what we're doing because God has prescribed it that it be done this way. So back to verse 10 again. It says at the end of the, the verse there, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. If they were familiar with the scripture, they would know that God made a promise to Israel and that if I'm going to follow through on the scripture, 
If I'm going to be obedient to the scripture, I am not going to try to undermine what God is doing here. Let's go look at Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis, we have the Abrahamic covenant there in the first three verses of chapter 12. It says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, from thy kindred, from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And here's the thing I want you to look at. I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. If the folks back here in Nehemiah were really interested in pleasing the God of Israel, then they're going to want to bless and not curse. They're going to want to help and not hinder. But that's not their interest. Let me also mention that you can't compartmentalize your life as far as God is concerned. That my my religious life is separate from my, my business life. You can't do that. The Christian is to be on 24-7. I don't have a different set of ethics in one part of my, uh, compartment of my life uh, from this compartment over here. I am to be consistent my whole life. I am on 24-7. I am a Christian first and foremost 24-7. These folks here, the Samaritans and so on, are far more interested in their power. They're far more interested in their, their economics than they are in the worship of the, of the God that they pay lip service to. Yes, they have a temple. Yes, they, they observe some of the feasts. Yes, they do all these different things. But it's all externals. It's all for show. If they were really interested in worshiping God, they would go back to the book and find out what God says in the book. And they wouldn't be doing what they're doing. They were grieved. It grieved them exceedingly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. Now, remember, Nehemiah had initially kept secret his plans. He had not told anybody about this. He arrived. He had uh, gone through. He had checked out everything. It says uh, in verse 9, this is when he first shows up. When I came to the governors beyond the river, I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. So he shows up with a military entourage. And he presents to Sanballat and Tobiah his credentials stamped with the king's seal. They see it all right there. They see the Persian soldiers. They see the cavalry. They see the paperwork. They see Nehemiah. And they are grieved exceedingly. But he's got the credentials. He's got at least some show of force. He's got some soldiers with him. Nehemiah did not tell these guys why he was there. Although I think that they could probably put some things together since he had access to, to timber and so on. Well, why, why, why does he have authorization to access the stands of timber? Why does, there must be something going on here, some building project in mind. And they concluded that Nehemiah had positive plans for Judea that involved building. It grieved them exceedingly. In uh, John chapter 15, verse 18, our Lord said, If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Ideally, the world hates us because we represent Christ. Ideally, the world hates us because we are God's children. They hate God, and therefore they hate us because we are his children. Ideally, the world is no friend to God's people. In verse 19, it says, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the, the servant, the, the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arabian heard it, heard what the plan was, heard that we were going to build the walls, and they had been there almost certainly to Jerusalem. They knew what it looked like. 
They knew that Nehemiah was an outsider, probably never been there himself before them. When they heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us. Number one, they think that the job is, is impossible. And then it says this, what is this thing that you do? Will you rebel against the king? Their idea is that at least they're throwing this out because they don't really believe this. They don't really, they had seen his credentials. The soldiers that came with them are not locals. They came from Persia. They're throwing this out there to give a sense of fear. You are here to create your own little empire. You are here to rebuild a city, to create big defenses so that you can withstand a siege because you are planning on rebelling against the king and establishing yourself as king. Because what else can they say? What else can they do? They don't have the power, and they certainly don't have the authority to deal with Nehemiah. He's got his credentials. They've seen the credentials. They laughed him to scorn. There was irreligious deriding is the idea here. They're mocking him. They're slandering. They're defaming him. They are covering, by the way, their own fear, rage, and anger. They're throwing it back. That's their their attack because inside they're like, oh, no, this is awful. This is horrific. This is, I'm just, ah! So we got to turn it around and make it all Nehemiah's fault, even though he's got the credentials and so forth. They despised him. There's a disdain. There is a great deal of ethnic hatred here. There's also wishful thinking on their part because they, they are hoping to find something, something that will have some, some traction against Nehemiah. So they deal with the false accusation, rebelling against the king. It had worked before, by the way. If you go back and read Ezra chapter 4 verses 12 and 13, let's, let's read that. Again, the Samaritans trying to stop the building of the temple. And so they wrote a letter to the to the king that was uh, ruling at that time. And they said, be it known unto the king that the Jews which came up from thee to us are coming to Jerusalem and building that rebellious and bad city. Let's throw those uh, adjectives in there. And have set up the walls thereof and joined the foundations. Be it known now unto the king that if this city is be builded and the walls set up again, that they will not pay toll, tribute, or custom. They, no tax revenue is going to come to Persia, so that thou shalt uh, endamage the revenue of the kings. Now, there was no basis in truth in this. But they sent this letter, to which lo, loaded letter, as far as the language is concerned, they sent this to the king of Persia. Now, I thought Cyrus had decreed that they were to go and build the temple. Yes, but Cyrus had died in the meantime. Because when the children of Israel got to Jerusalem, they they cleared the site, they laid the foundation stone, they built an altar, they had sacrifices, they had a big celebration, and then everybody went home and started building their own houses. And it would be 14 years before they got back to work again. And in the meantime, Cyrus had died. And the document, you know, can you imagine? They have no computers. It's written on a scroll someplace. Where's the scroll? Where's the authorization? It could be in one of like five different cities. And you have a zillion little pigeonholes, all filled with tubes of, of, uh, of parchment. And it's going to be on one of those. And you have to pull out each one and read it to find out which one it is. Now, there was no basis in truth as far as the accusations were concerned. In John chapter 8 and verse 44, it says the, the father, or the devil is the father of lies. The enemy has no ethics. The devil has no standards. 
What he wants is something that will work. And he doesn't care which tactic he, he does. Lying often works. Never be, never be surprised, folks. Never be surprised at the wickedness of the wicked. We are bound. We can't, we can't, it's never right to do wrong to do right. Ends don't justify the means. I can't lie, cheat, steal, and, uh, and deceive to achieve a greater end. 120 years ago, there were dozens, 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 probably hundreds of colleges and seminaries all across the country that were in place to train preachers. And during that same window of time, there was an effort to take those, take over those schools by those who denied the inspiration and authority of Scripture, the virgin birth, the blood atonement, the bodily resurrection, the second coming. They denied all those things. And they wanted to take over these, these Christian institutions. And pretty soon the denominations were split, and there was a fight. Who was going to be in control? Who's going to, who's going to control the churches? Who's going to control all the properties? Who's going to control all the schools? The Bible believers lost every fight. Oh, that's awful. Well, how, how could they? They were right though. Yes, they were right. But why did they lose all the battles? Because the other side would lie, cheat, and steal. Are we surprised? Now, by the way, one of the fascinating things is that the Bible believers started all over again. And to this day, the Bible believing churches are full. And the other guys, the churches are empty. Because we preach the gospel, telling people how they can have forgiveness, how they can have a right relationship with God, how they can be certain of heaven. And the other guys get up there and they preach what? Platitudes and feel-goodism and social justice and a whole bunch of other things that have nothing to do with eternity or God. So in reality, we have won even though we lost. But never be surprised at the wickedness of the wicked. The devil's kids take after their father. The remarkable, frankly, the remarkable thing is that people behave as well as they do. You know, why is it that we don't have murder and pillage going on nonstop? Well, why is it that God instituted human government? It's to create order, to prevent chaos, and to institute something called fear. I'll give you an illustration. You're tooling down 167. Voice of experience. Tooling down 167. And I glance over here and I see a flashing blue light. What's the first thing I do? I take my foot off the accelerator and then glance down at the speedometer. Okay. Or ease the brake. Just, just a little. It's kind of funny. If you're driving a lot, and you notice that everybody else does the same thing because whenever you see a police car, the first thing you see is a bunch of brake lights in front of you. Why do people respond that way? Fear. I'm afraid of consequences. God, insta- by the way, I don't care how bad the government is, you're better off with government than none. Because then you have the chaos and the murder and the mayhem and the looting and all this other stuff, and who's going to stop it? The surprise is that people behave as well as they do. The goal of these false accusations was to make Nehemiah and the people of Judah very anxious and worried. Worried about possible intervention by the authorities. It had happened twice before. And the Jews have no recourse if the king calls a halt to the project. When you, uh, how many of you have ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs? Unpleasant reading. I'd, I'd encourage you to read it, but it's unpleasant reading. During the Roman persecutions, the Christians were accused of two things in particular. They were accused of atheism, but we believe in, 
Yes, but we deny the reality of all the pagan gods. So they were accused of atheism. And then they were accused of... Okay, if you have never been to a church before, and Christians are some secret cult, and they do something called the Lord's Supper, where the Lord said, this is my body and this is my blood. The popular conception was that the Christians in their secret meetings practiced cannibalism. Honest to goodness. That was one of the main accusations that was out there, was that Christians were practicing cannibalism. And so they would arrest Christians, they would persecute Christians for atheism and cannibalism. Now, neither charge was true, but people still went to the arena and were fed to the lions. People were still crucified. People were still burned at the stake. It was a lie. Yeah, but but, but people still died. Lies may bring a real sentence. It's worked before. It'll work again. And Nehemiah's opponents... His enemies thought the same. All right. Nehemiah has just arrived. He's been there less than a week. He's been there about four days. And all this is coming down. From the surrounding governors. I'm surrounded by bad guys who want to do me in. They want to stop the project. They, they, they hate this. They are angry. They are going to do everything they can. And the king is... If you're gonna, if you're gonna ride a donkey or walk, the king is four months away. They did have a pony express service that was used for government work only, but even then it's gonna take three or four weeks for a message to get there. So I'm here by myself. I've got my little entourage here. I've got the people that I'm supposed to be ruling over, and I'm surrounded by bad guys who want to stop what I'm doing and really, as we're gonna get into this, really want to do him in. What is his initial response? Look at verse 20. Here's his answer. One verse. Now, by the way, he's not going to kind of, kind of, kind of smooth the feathers. He's not going to try to, to stroke the fur. He's not going to try to make things all, oh, it's okay. Can't we all just get along? This is not the approach he's going to take. Then answered I them, and I said unto them, the God of heaven, he will prosper us. And frankly, that's all we need. If I have a commission from God to do what God has told me to do with a promise that it's going to happen. He had prayed. God had brought all pieces together. There's a strong likelihood that God's going to bring it about. The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. We are going to do what the king sent us here to do because God is the one who changed the king's heart and is bringing it about. But ye, you guys, have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. First and foremost, he affirms his his trust in the Lord, who is, of course, the real source of authority, the real source of power. Always give God the glory. He's behind it all. The whole project is a is a remarkable answer to prayer and will continue to be. Notice that he makes no appeal to the king. He makes no appeal to his credentials. We've had a lot of folks, and I appreciate the First Amendment. I appreciate it. I appreciate our constitutional rights. If the authorities will not honor them, they are only worth the piece of paper that they're printed on. And I could name on my hands and my feet and beyond all the countries that supposedly have freedom of religion and don't. That constitutionally, they have it, but in reality, they don't. Our authority is not based on the Constitution as much as we love it. Our authority is based on the word of God. And Nehemiah recognizes that. 
He says, we will arise and build. We have a task to do. We have a God-given task to do. He is not going to allow himself to get distracted. He recognizes that this is not personal. They don't know me. They know what I represent. It's not personal. The enemy is always going to want to make it personal, which gets our emotions involved and will cause us to respond in an improper way. But understand, it's not personal. It's done for a greater purpose, just like what we're supposed to be doing is for a greater purpose. We need to make sure that we don't get distracted, that we don't react in kind. Our Lord said in uh, in Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 35, But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great, and you shall be called the children of the highest, for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. It is always a good reminder to look back. I've had this happen several times in the past week. It is always a good reminder to remember the the hole of the pit whence ye are digged. What do I mean by that? You used to be on the other side of the fence. Before you came to know Christ as Savior, you were one of those guys. And it's good to remember that there was a time when you were in their shoes. When you had their, their mindset, their worldview. Oh, I wasn't. Yeah, yeah, you were. And that apart from grace, we would be what they are. And apart from grace, they will suffer the wrath of God. We need to recognize that all the trouble that we are going to endure, that we are enduring, is the result of doing right. Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, 12 says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. If we're not suffering persecution, we're probably doing something wrong. Because if we're doing the right thing, we're going to run into some opposition. We're going to run into some persecution. And then Nehemiah says that you have nothing to do with God's work. When he says you have no portion, he says you have no legal share here. You have no inheritance, no inheritance here, no allotment. You are not a partaker. You haven't, you have no part of this. If I preach the gospel, says, well, I'm going to go to heaven. Have you gone through Jesus Christ? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your savior? No, but I'm going to heaven anyway. No, you have no lot in this. You have no portion there. You may think you have. You may claim it as a right, but that's all it is, is an empty claim. You have no right, you have no ethical or moral claim to this. You have no right to this, Nehemiah says. Nehemiah, politically, was not accountable to the other governors. He was among peers, theoretically. They were seeking to undermine his work, but his work was not their work. And then Nehemiah says, you have no memorial here. You have no historic claim here. You are outsiders Now, Gentiles could become Jews. The law made provision for this in the Old Testament. It is prophesied in many places in the Old Testament that the Gentiles would turn to Israel's God. But these folks are outsiders not only ethnically, but they are outsiders spiritually, as we've already looked at when we dealt with the idea of the Samaritans. They do not know the God of Israel. They may be paying lip service to him, going through the motions, but they don't know the God of Israel. And that's demonstrated how? By their words and deeds. They are, as the world is, they are unwittingly minions of the devil. And regardless of their claims of religion, lost people generally act like lost people. And by the way, Christians who act like lost people are simply demonstrating they're not really Christians. Whether Regardless of how faithful they may be in church or if they have a job in the church or a responsibility or a position of leadership in the church, if they act like lost people when they're outside of here, guess what? They're dealing with lost people who have their heads filled with Christian knowledge. 
but they have compartmentalized their lives. Yes, I can, I can put on my Christian facade for church. And the rest of the week, I will live as I really am, a lost person. And so Nehemiah is dealing with adversaries. But Nehemiah will not be distracted. He has a God-given task. And he's on this earth, as you and I are, to fulfill that task. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace of God. Thank you for the purpose that you have given us. The devil is endeavoring to distract us. He always is. We are inundated with distractions today. We are inundated by fears. And Father, I pray that you would help us to remember that you have given us a task. As we looked at, as we got to the end of Mark's gospel just a few short weeks ago, you have given us a commission. And the circumstances don't change the commission. May we be faithful to the task that you have called your children to do. And Lord, if there's somebody here today that does not know Christ as Savior, they may have gone to church, they may be going through the motions. Father, did they know you? I pray that you'd open their eyes. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace Baptist Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to know more about faith in Jesus Christ or more about our ministry, please visit www.gracebaptistpuallop.org. Until next time, may you walk worthy of the Lord.